The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of First Samuel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen for God's word to you. In those days, the Philistines mustered for war against Israel, and Israel went out to battle against them. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle was joined, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord put us to rout today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, so that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, Gods have come into the camp. They also said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, in order not to become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated, and they fled, everyone to his home. There was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As a church, we've been looking together at the book of 1 Samuel, and one of the great things about being able to look at an entire book together is it gives us the big picture rather than looking just at specific texts. We can get a story that the book as a whole is telling. You'll recall that in looking at the book of 1 Samuel so far, the story began not looking at the larger people or region of ancient Israel, but it honed in initially on two specific families within that larger group of people. First, we were introduced to the family of Zuphites from the tribe of Ephraim, Elkanah, Penina, and Hannah. When Hannah gives birth to a son, you'll recall she dedicates the boy to God's service. She brings him to the Jewish temple at Shiloh and presents him to the high priest Eli. The temple was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, the Ark being that powerful symbol of the enthroned presence of God. So it was housed in the holiest place in the life of ancient Israel at that time, the temple. 
Samuel would be raised there at the temple under Eli's care as a kind of assistant to the high priest. And we read the Lord was with Samuel and God spoke to Samuel in the silence as we remembered especially last Sunday. As we watch Samuel grow up in the temple, grow up strong in the Lord, we're also introduced to the high priest Eli and to his family. The office of the high priest was the highest religious office a person could hold in ancient Israel. Since the time of Aaron, it was an office meant to be passed on from father to son. Eli held it at the time we read about in 1 Samuel, but there was a problem in the priestly house, a problem in this office of high priest in the time of Eli, for Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were most unworthy of the office, and they were to inherit it. We learn earlier in 1 Samuel that they embezzled funds. They took some of the offerings of God's people for themselves more than their share and so showed contempt for the offerings of God. They bullied those who worked in the temple, and this corruption is a huge problem. Samuel hears a word from God telling him to alert Eli that because of these sins of Eli's son, trouble was coming for Eli's family. Then we come to chapter 4, the section that was read by Philip this morning. And in chapter 4, we finally read of the whole people of ancient Israel as a body. We read of the Philistines mustering for war against ancient Israel. The Philistines occupied the land just south of Israel. And as we read about them in Scripture, they are portrayed as expansionistic and militaristic. And so they make war, we read, against ancient Israel, and they defeat them. Well, the elders of ancient Israel gather and think about what to do, and they decide, let's call upon the Lord, and the Lord will save us. More than that, they even decide to go and get the Ark of the Covenant that was in Shiloh and bring it to where the troops were camped in this ongoing battle with the Philistines. That, they thought, would turn the tide, and then they brought the Ark of the Covenant. It was brought by Eli's own sons into the camp where the troops of ancient Israel were gathered and a loud shout rang out. It was like the presence of God was there. If you've read William Shakespeare's Henry V, it was like the troops of England had just heard a rousing speech from Henry V at Agon Court on St. Crispin's day. As William Shakespeare tells the story, after that speech, the English troops were emboldened, and even though they were smaller in number, they ended up prevailing against the much larger and stronger French forces. That's how it must have felt to the people of ancient Israel camped and preparing for battle that now victory would surely be theirs. Or if you're more familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, think Think of the movie Endgame, you know, right near the end, Captain Marvel enters the scene and you think, okay, even though things were going badly now, the tide's going to turn. There's a power and presence so great, the Avengers are inspired, their enemies are in fear. Now we know who's going to prevail. With that shout in the Israel camp, the Philistines are terrified and they think, How can we stand against this force? The gods who are with these people, they're the same gods that brought down the Egyptians that sent plagues against the Pharaoh. How can we stand against them? 
We think we know where this story's going, right? And then the Philistines hear this call, oh, Philistines, be brave. Go and do battle. Don't be enslaved to the people of ancient Israel the way they have been enslaved to you. Be men. Go and fight. And the Philistines hear this call. They do battle with Israel and they win. Ancient Israel is defeated. And this time the loss is so much worse than the prior battle. Instead of losing 4,000, this time ancient Israel loses 30,000. That's not the way we expected the story to go. Not once the Ark of the Covenant had arrived in Israel's camp. And then we read more that the very Ark of the Covenant is seized by the Philistines. And then those future high priests of Israel, the sons of Eli, are killed. It is a devastating loss. And if you read on in chapter 4, there's nothing offered to soften that loss. If anything, it, the tragedy of it really sinks in. The news is brought to Eli that his sons have been killed. The news is brought to one of Eli's son's wives that her husband has been killed, and the news destroys both of them. This is not how the story was supposed to go. Now, don't get me wrong, the book of 1 Samuel has some great victories in it. It has the story, after all, of David defeating Goliath. But here, in chapter 4, we read in unmistakable contours and colors, not of a great victory in the story of ancient Israel, the story of the people of God, we hear of a devastating failure. We see in chapter 4 how this people called and claimed by God as God's very own, called to not only be blessed by God, but to go and be a blessing to the world. We see how they failed, that there are people checkered by failure. You know, they say history is written by the victors, right? And if that's the case, the people of ancient Israel seem absolutely determined not simply to write of their victories, but to write time and again of their failures. We read of how once God freed them from Egypt and sent them into the wilderness, how they quarreled and complained. We read in Exodus about how they bowed down to a golden calf instead of God. In today's text, we read about how they tolerated this corruption, this evil in the temple and the priestly family. Time and again, we read of how they fell short. It's as if they want to say, the people of ancient Israel, in putting down this history, look at these incredible failures and look at what God is able to do in and through this people anyway. Listen to how often the prophets decry their misdeeds, the misdeeds of the people of ancient Israel, their failure to do justice for the widow, the immigrant, and the orphan, and look at the failures and see not the story of the greatness of this people, but the greatness of the God they worshiped. Look at the faithfulness, not of this people who fell short so often. Look at the steadfast love, the forgiveness, the mercy, and faithfulness of the God they worshiped, the God who never gave up on them, the God who was able to work in and through them, and sometimes even despite them, how God could work in a people checkered by failure and do great things in the world 
anyway. The story of a people checkered by failure. That's the story of the Old Testament. And it's the story of the New Testament too, isn't it? We see the disciples, those called by Christ, arguing about which one is the greatest. We see them failing to comprehend time and again what Jesus is telling them. We see how they fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus had told them to stay awake one hour. And then when it really counted, when Jesus went all the way to the cross, did they stay faithful in that final hour? No. Other than a few women, we read the disciples fled the scene. Lord have mercy, how God's people as they're depicted in Scripture are checkered by failure. And yet God does remarkable things in and through them. God proclaims good news, heals the sick, gives the word of salvation, casts out evil, shows compassion to the poor, builds community of mutual care and sharing and offers salvation through this failing, flailing group of people that we call the people of God, that we call today the church. So friends, hear this good news from chapter 4 of 1 Samuel and from the whole of our scriptures, our failures, our faults, they're just not the end of the story. We worship a God so much bigger than our failures. We follow a Savior who suffered the most ignoble failure imaginable at His time, death on the cross. His followers dispersed the movement ending in shame. And God raised this Jesus from the dead and had Him ascend to heaven that He might be at work as we believe He is today in wonderful ways in us, in our world, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Savor that good news. Savor it especially today. One of so many hard things about these last 19 months or so is that it's left so many of us feeling like we have failed. As parents, many of us feel we failed to educate our children well when all we've had is remote education to offer them. Many of us have a sense of failure at work, unable to accomplish what we could pre-pandemic or failed to adjust as quickly as we now, looking back, wish we had. Many of us have felt a sense of failure in relationships with family members and friends that amidst the distance the pandemic imposed on us, we weren't able to be present for others in the ways we wanted to be. And then there's that national sense of failure we still hold, of not being able to stop the deaths, of not being able to bring an end to COVID, which is still with us today. Have you found yourself in recent months wrestling with that nagging sense of failure? Well, if you do, hear again the good news of the gospel you are beloved, not because you are successful. You are beloved because God is at work in your lives, because God has chosen you and claimed you as God's own. You can stand on footing so much more solid than your own success, fleeting as it is. You can stand on the rock of ages. 
God's people, ancient Israel, the first disciples of Jesus Christ, you and me today, we're a people checkered by failure, and God loves us. God is at work in us anyway. God's at work creating, redeeming, and sustaining anyway. And with that, holding tight to that gospel good news, we can step out into the world, even in pandemic days, and know that failure isn't the end. Failure can't stop us. We can take it. We can take it again and again and move forward by God's power at work in us because we know failure is not the end of the story. With God, all things are possible, and we are beloved by God, whether we succeed or fail. Well, my daughter is 16 right now, and as she and many of her friends are getting driver's licenses, it's reminding me of a time in my life I had to contend with failure at that age. And when I look back on that time and a incident I'm going to recount to you all. I'm, I'm embarrassed not so much by the failure. I'm embarrassed that I didn't realize at the time that the failure was just not that big a deal, you know? That there were lessons to be learned in that, wonderful lessons. So I don't know about you, but when I was set to turn 16, I'd already scheduled my behind-the-wheel driver's test for that day because I didn't want a single day to go by when I didn't have that driver's license. It represented freedom to me, being able to drive my mom and dad's gray Honda Prelude with its stick shift and go to my friend's house. I'd even planned to visit them the evening of my birthday, drive to see them. I couldn't wait. I'd ace the written tests and all the preparations for the driver's test, and I thought, hey, thousands of people pass this driver's test all the time. How hard can it be? So I arrive at the DMV in that gray Honda Prelude. The test administrator sits in the passenger seat. I think I've got this. So we begin driving. And I drive down a neighborhood street at what I thought was a pretty slow pace. And then, without parallel parking or anything else, the test administrator has me go right back to the DMV. This is not good. I know something is wrong. And then I still remember the words he said. He said, give me your definition of a blind, unmarked intersection. And I knew all was lost. It was the end of the world. I had failed my behind-the-wheel driver's test. I had to tell my parents. I had to tell my friends what a horrible embarrassment it was. And you know what I learned through that? It wasn't the end of the world. I was able to take the test again and drive. How I wish I had that lesson more instilled in me at the time that I could be a person checkered by failure and it was okay. As a high-achieving student, that was a hard lesson to learn. But it was an important one because Lord knows I had many failures still waiting for me like this one. In 2003, 
I drove from where I was living at the time in Norwalk, Connecticut, all the way to Washington, D.C., and it was the final culmination of efforts I, together with a host of other Christians in the region, had been working on. This was February, and the event in Washington, D.C. was to be this enormous protest that had one single message. The message was, don't go to war with Iraq. So there we were in Washington, D.C., half a million of us. I was there with other people of faith, and the sense of prophetic power was enormous. There was a sense that this would surely stop the war. Later, I heard news that near between 6 and 10 million people had gathered in cities, some 600 cities all around the world. There was a sense we did it, that this effort, this march would help stop an impending war with Iraq. And then in March of that year, we learned that the U.S. together with Australia, England, and other countries had invaded Iraq. I, we, had failed. The largest protest Guinness Book of World Records says in human history, and we failed. And I, we, had to come to terms with that. So what do you do with failure as a believer? Small failures and big ones. What do you do? You simply remember the story is not finally about you or about me. It's about a God who's powerfully at work in the world in, through, and despite our failures, and you lean on that God, a God of resurrection, a God for whom our failures are never the end of the story. God can do wonderful things in our lives. God does do wonderful things in our lives, in and through us and apart from us, even if we are a people checkered by failure. Well, one final question I know you're asking right now, why? Why does God allow failure? Why do we have to suffer through it? Why do God's people, even with God present with them, suffer failure? Well, let me close by offering you a few possibilities considering today's passage from 1 Samuel 4. Perhaps... Perhaps God allows us to fail to wean us from the false God of success. Failure can help us remember, wait, it's not my own victory that I lean on, but rather the grace and love of God. In a recent interview with The Atlantic, Cornel West is asked about the state of the church, and while he lifts up the historic black church's concern for the incarcerated civil rights and other laudable efforts in the church, he also laments that there is too little in the church of prophetic faith today. He says too often the church worships success rather than Jesus. Do you ever feel like that, like you or your community is too drawn to success and not enough to that Savior who bid us come and follow Him, take up your cross and follow me? Failure can be a great opportunity to turn away from that idol of success and turn again to that suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who promised even though the gate is hard that leads to life, it leads to life, and God is with us on the journey. 
Perhaps God allows God's people to fail because failure is part of taking bold risk and discipleship, stepping out in faith to love God and neighbor, being community, proclaiming the good news of God's salvation. That's risky stuff and risk, adventure, stepping out into new terrain. It means you'll fail sometimes. You will. That's surely why Jesus warned the disciples before He sent them out two by two that some would reject their message and they should prepare to wipe the dust from their feet. He was warning them, failure will be part of the adventure of heading out in mission, but do it anyway. Do it anyway because it is a rich, rewarding, powerful journey and God will be with you. Do it anyway and don't let failure stop you. Your failures, my failures, they're never the end when God's part of the picture, so step out in faith. You might have heard the quote from Theodore Roosevelt, from Teddy Roosevelt, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. I think Jesus might have put that a little differently. He might have said, far better to dare wonderful things for God than to refuse the call of discipleship for fear of failure. Perhaps God allows us to fail as part of our own transformation. Failure, after all, can help us assess when we might have fallen short or done things wrong and help us correct the path. In today's passage from 1 Samuel 4, we learn that it is Eli's own sons who bring the ark into the camp, and they are destroyed as part of this awful defeat. God is transforming the priesthood. God is at work, and sometimes we need to recognize when we've gone the wrong way, and failure can help alert us to that so we can be open to God's transformation and choose a different path. And finally, maybe God allows us to fail as preparation and prelude for something great God has yet to do. Yes, Israel fails in today's passage and the ark is taken by the Philistines, but we'll read on and we will read how that ark is restored and God ends up being powerfully at work in this people again. The presence of God represented in that ark would one day arrive in a more glorious fashion still, coming near to us in the one we call Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes failure is a prelude to something great yet to come. When we listen to the music of Handel's Messiah, we usually assume it was written by a man at the pinnacle of his success. In fact, Messiah was written after Handel had suffered a debilitating stroke. He was living in poverty amid bleak surroundings. He'd suffered through a particular deep night of gloom and despair over his future as a musician. He felt like a failure, and he had reason to believe he was. Then the next morning, he writes, hallelujah. He writes, the Messiah. He unleashes this amazing piece of music and choirs around the world still sing today that great affirmation that in a world with so much wrong in it, God is at work to redeem and save. Hallelujah. 
we sing to, to handle score, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, hallelujah. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen.